Uh, we're going to start with a little bit of um, poetry from, from another American. A lot of American voices up here today, mine included. Um, Edgar Allan Poe in 1849 wrote a poem called A Dream Within a Dream. It's about looking back over life and feeling the passing of time. Uh, here's the, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's the second half. It says, I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep while I weep, while I weep. Oh, God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? Oh, God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? Just that line of, oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp that the sand keeps falling through our fingers? I think that image of sand running through our fingers explains well the hopes and expectations we might have in our life, the anxieties we have of not kind of attaining them. And so we try and grasp it really hard, but often the experiences of the sand kind of coming away from our fingers. We have big hopes, we have lots of love, we have all sorts of big desires, and many of them are great but we're so afraid to lose them or actually not attain them. And so much is out of our grasp, though, and the more we try and close our fists, the more escapes us. Well, we're all afraid. We're not going to get what we want or what we need from this life, and so we're anxious to get it. Uh, so that sometimes, you know, we go after whatever it is by whatever means necessary. The ends justify the means. Like, I know I have to work and not see my family ever, but this is the kind of lifestyle I want to live, so that's what I have to do. Or I know I should be generous, but I also want to go out every night, so that's what I have to do. Applied to children, applied to how our families work, applied to jobs, applied to our future. That's all, that's how we work. We're afraid we're going to miss out on life, and so we demand things from life to come through for us. We work really hard to get the things we think we need, and in doing so, life slips from our hands like sand. We don't get life that way. We get death. So this is how maybe uh, that works out. Demanding to be known means objectifying others to, to basically their purpose is to fulfill that desire to be known. Demanding for a release these two objectifying others can lead to stuff like pornography. Demanding a certain kind of lifestyle leads to greed, either in time or in money. Demanding what I want will always be opposed to actually loving others. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. He knows there's a much better way to live. He says, instead of going through your days demanding from life, you should surrender to the one who brings life. Because left to ourselves, we demand that the world, that God, that whatever come through for us. And that leads us down a path of violence to others as well as to ourselves. That's not a whole way to live. That's a malformed kind of way to live. And in the end, we actually don't even get that thing that we're demanding. We, we get death. We get something less than life. But Jesus leads us down a different path. His words here in these 12 verses, in this story we're going to look at today, um, point to his death and resurrection. And we'll talk about that in a bit. It also points to a path of surrender. And following Jesus on his path leads to life. And so uh, we're just going to walk through this parable as it goes. This is a story that Jesus is telling, explaining like a bigger, uh, a bigger idea. And we're just going to walk through it as Jesus is telling it here. Um, the situation that Jesus talks about, basically like someone owning land and there being tenants, things like that, would be very common in first century Palestine where Jesus is. So everyone have been, everybody would have like, oh yeah, yeah, we get this. We get this kind of background. Now we don't all get that background because I am not a tenant in a vineyard. So we'll talk about kind of what the deal is with those things as well as we go through. But let's first, these first six verses, uh, just have a look at the owner's patience. These first six verses. The owner's patience arises from love. 
Patience has to come from somewhere. For the owner, it, came, it comes from love. This man whoop, planted a vineyard, protected it with walls, created a wine press. I mean, how to fully enjoy grape. What's the best way to enjoy a grape? Is to wait, to enjoy it as wine. That's the best way to enjoy a grape, to get the most out of them and to make sure no one would come in and steal those things. He made a building like a watchtower. I mean, it seems like a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of time invested. But if you love grapes and you love wine, that's what you do. That's what it looks like. And what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing up imagery from a passage in Isaiah 5. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read the first two verses of Isaiah 5. But basically, Isaiah 5 is all about God talking about the immense amount of love that he has for his people, using the metaphor of a vineyard, of taking care of a vineyard. The first two verses in Isaiah 5, you'll see how these connect. Say this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up cleared it of stones, planted it with the choice spines, built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. So it's like a one-to-one kind of correlation here. Jesus is saying, this is like, a vineyard is kind of like a love song to God's people. The owner's patient. Impatient people don't grow grapes quickly. You just kind of like, I don't know, I don't know what impatient people do with grapes, chop it down or something. Good grapes take a long time. There was a, vine- there was a vineyard that Christina and I visited in California where they had 100-year-old vines. Like, what is it? It's like generations of vines. Like, we don't even know who planted them. And this kind of patience, this kind of like immense patience comes from love. God just loves his people. So that's the owner. Uh, the servants, or the, and the vineyard, the servants um, are not always... Uh, super good at being servants because this owner, uh, well, sorry, the servants um, allowed others, uh, the other people to come in and tend the vines. This is what God allowed other people to come in and tend the vines. It's a very common practice. You'd set up a vineyard and then you move on to the next thing. You get people, you hire people to work the vineyards. Um, It was also very common for there to be tension between the two, owners and workers. That's common today. Your boss, oh, the boss is horrible. Boss says the same thing about their employees. Oh, I have the worst employees. Everybody says that. That's kind of how it works. The landlord, he's not from around here. He moves somewhere else. Like the servants, hey, we're local and we're doing the work. So it's obvious kind of tension that would happen here. It's not the tenant's land, but they've been hired for the job. And you know, you could imagine that it would begin to think, you know, we're doing all the work. Like, I don't, I, I, when was the last time the owner himself came by? I don't know, maybe we should just keep all the stuff for ourselves. Who planted this vineyard? Who built a wall? Who made a wine press? Who made the watchtower? Doesn't matter, they don't really care. So when the owner collects some of the fruit, not all the fruit, but some of it, because he's not an overbearing owner, first the tenants beat one of the servants, then they hit one on the head and disgrace another, then they kill another, and this owner sent many other servants, even after they got beaten, shamed, and killed. What kind of owner has this kind of patience? Is this patience bordering on like stupidity? Like, you keep on sending these servants, what happens? You keep, they keep on getting beat or disgraced or whatever the thing is. It's getting ridiculous. It seems irrational. Where does it come from? Well, servant was the common word for prophet in the Old Testament. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament, you wouldn't call yourself a prophet. Most often, you just call yourself a servant. So it's clear what Jesus is talking about here. The Father has this vineyard. He's uh, sending prophets, and God's people are not responding well. I mean, really, are any prophets celebrated in their time? It's kind of like definition definition of being a prophet. You're not liked, generally. So why does God keep sending them? Why is he so patient? It's because God loves his people. 
This love gets beyond normal behaviors because God is so enthralled with who you are. He is okay to sacrifice servants for your, for your sake. He doesn't want you to live a life where the sand keeps falling through your fingers. He knows we're stubborn. He knows we don't learn quickly. He's patient with us because he loves us so much. And so then we come to the son. The owner saw that something more needed to be done. These servants, they're not doing the job. They're either getting hit on the head or disgraced or whatever the thing is. But the owner had a son whom he loved. And he thought the tenants would respect his son. There was nobody left. No more servants. Like this would be the end. This would be it. Now, surely on one hand, the owner knew the risk. He knew the likelihood of what was going to happen. Like he knew like, okay, let's see. Every single servant I've sent has either been beaten or killed yeah, the son will probably be different. Now, the owner knows what's going on. He's not, he's not dumb. He knew the risk, but he loved his people as much as he loved his son. And so the owner is patient and sends his son. And through this, it doesn't take a, uh, a doctorate to get easily what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the son whom the owner, the father, loves. Jesus was sent the last servant with the most authority, the one, uh, someone who should be respected. <laughs> And the son was sent out of the patient love of the father. So this is the first act of the story. These six verses kind of sets up what's going on. And Jesus is talking directly. In this, in this story, Jesus is talking directly to religious leaders who are already trying to kill Jesus. They're already plotting how to kill him. That's the primary audience of the story. And we heard actually like last week that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. This week he's talking about something else. Uh, these religious leaders are the evil tenants. Now, that's the primary audience. The secondary audience, though, is all the crowds who are listening. There's like us here, we're listening in on what's going on. The crowds are the vineyards, the people. God's people are the vineyards themselves, the vines that are producing fruit. Now, good tenants should be tending vines and should be doing the best to make the fruit bloom in the way that they were meant to, but they're not. The prophets that the Father has sent, they're being beaten, they're being killed. The tenants who should be working for the owner Instead of working for the good of the vineyard or working for the good of the owner, they're working for the good of themselves. So why give God something that I can keep for myself? What's he done for me anyway? I'm the one who's doing the work. I'm here. Where's God? I don't know. This is how religious people like us miss out on God. It's how to live a life with sand slipping through our fingers and look like we're very good on the outside. So these first six verses is like the setup. All right, last of all, he sent the son saying, oh, they're going to respect my son. What happens next? Well, it's not too good. It gets worse. Next two verses, it's all about how violent these tenants are. So we already have an idea of kind of of the trajectory of what's going to happen here. Um, But here's what Jesus tells us. The tenants decide to kill the son. They had to plan. The son has an inheritance. Let's steal it. So they kill the son. They chuck him over the walls outside the vineyard, left unburied. They don't want to look at the body. They don't want to deal with the burial. They're just going to chuck him outside the walls. Now, it might be kind of weird. Um, why would killing the son give them an inheritance? Well, according to first century Palestinian property law, and I know as soon as I said that phrase, you guys are like, I am here for this. First century, pa- like, tell me more, please. Can we go through the list? Uh, we kind of need to know what the deal is. So um, if the son is coming, the tenants there would, would basically assume, surely that means the owner has died. The owner has died. The son has come to claim his inheritance. So that means we're out of a job. And uh, like this whole whole... Uh, the whole story is over. So if, but that still doesn't give them an inheritance. If the son is the sole heir, as they said here, oh, this is the heir, uh, and they kill the heir, and the property's left unclaimed, the people who claim it first can get it. 
So if they kill the son, the property is left unclaimed, then the tenants can steal the land for themselves, and then they become the owner. Basically, they take for themselves as much as they can. So that's why the, the idea of killing the son gives them an inheritance. Hopefully that makes a little bit sense. Um, a step out of the legal field, back into uh, normal life, as normal as it gets to me. Um, so the, son, the coming of the son, then, it would make sense why the tenants would be scared, why would they be fearful. Like our way of life is being disrupted, like the son is coming. He's ready to claim all this for himself, and we're out of their job. So in their desperation, and actually complete lack of understanding, because the son isn't here to steal anything from anyone. He's just here to rightfully claim what was always his to begin with. Uh, and also, they didn't know the owner is still alive. We'll get to that in a bit. In this kind of desperate place, they kill the son. They throw him outside the vineyard walls, and he's left there to rot. So the tenants aren't loving. The tenants aren't patient. They're violent. Their violence comes from their foolishness, their self-centeredness. They're just kind of out for the world to get whatever I can get kind of aspect. They're demanding that life come through for them in the way that they want. And if anything or anyone gets in the way, they're going to put it to death. Instead of working with the owner towards an inheritance, they're seeking an inheritance for themselves at the cost to others. And so they want to kill the son. Anyone who's stuck in the search of self-seeking inheritance wants to kill the son because the son is going to disrupt that. An inheritance for ourselves first always comes at the cost of others. Always does. There's no kind of exception to that rule. Now, Jesus is talking to religious leaders here. So if you're a leader at Redeemer, this is aimed first at you, first at me. Like, are you going to be a good leader? But he's also talking to all of us. Because let's not really fool ourselves. We've, we've tried to kill the son many times. If we had the power to, we would have done it. So what do we get from killing the son? Why would we want to do that? What do you get from the idea of Jesus not being involved in your life? Anytime you want Jesus to not be involved in your life, that's an act of trying to murder Jesus in some way. It's like, oh, I quite like my bank account. Oh, no, here comes the son. Oh, I quite like my ordered life, the control that I have. Oh, no, here comes the son. I quite like having the world revolve around me. It's a lie I tell myself, but I like it. I'm all powerful. I'm the most glorious. If it doesn't work for me, I drop it immediately. Oh, no, here comes the son. This isn't just about church stuff. The son is going to come, and we're afraid of him disrupting our path to get what we want. So we kill him, and we throw him somewhere that we don't have to look. So Jesus really is giving us two options in this parable. Are we going to surrender to the son or are we going to kill him jesus is forcing that kind of decision and before we like quickly say the right churchy thing oh i surrender to you jesus which is it's a good thing to say but we can be kind of churchy and religious about that let's be honest with ourselves and say you know i have tried to kill him probably even many times this morning because my kid wasn't doing this and wasn't doing that it's like oh I try and go through life in my own power, in my own time, and I don't want to rely on him. So it's actually much easier for our lives if the son is dead. If you can be honest with yourself, can I ask you maybe take another step, and I should be honest with others in this, to talk about how in our dark moments, maybe not so dark because we get used to it, we have hearts that want to kill Jesus. Like, that's common for every human being. The sign of a person who has a secure relationship with Jesus is one who's able to quickly talk about their shortcomings. Humility is the sound of security, and boasting is just the sound of inadequacy. So it'd be great if we could be more honest with like, yeah, you know, I see a lot of myself reflected in this parable before we kind of move on to what we know we have to say in order to be okay. But we still have the last act of the story, and what we find is the tenants made a misstep 
It's kind of like those heist kind of films. I love those. Any kind of heist-related film, I'm, I'm in for it. I don't really care what language it's in, how bad it is. Like, they're making a plan. They're hatching a plan. They're going to steal this stuff. And then, oh, no, we overlooked this person. Or we underestimated this person. And it messes up all the plans. And that's where all the drama comes in. That's what's happening here. The tenants are like, this is a perfect plan. We're going to have this vineyard. It's all ours. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, the owner's alive. Oh, okay. So we have a problem here. The owner is alive, and the owner is not just loving, but he also has justice. He's also just. And so when Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? People would be like, whoa, wait, he's still alive? Oh, well, surely he's going to destroy them then. Like, that's what an owner would do. And that's kind of like the first thing that the owner does. In a reversal of the tenant's self-seeking inheritance, he removes them. They kill the son. Now they're going to be killed. They're like builders who rejected the most fundamental part of the building. God kills off the old way of leadership, the old way of doing things. He takes it out of the hands of a few leaders. And the owner is just, so he removes the murderers from continuing to murder. But the owner also loves this vineyard. So he's not saying, I'll burn the vineyard and I'm going to do something else. He loves this vineyard. God loves his people. So he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just remove the old way of doing things. He makes a new way and gives this vineyard to others. So out of the hands of the few corrupt leaders and into the hearts of the people. And this is what Jesus talks about when he quotes uh, the psalm here in Mark 10 and 11. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. What Jesus is doing there, he's quoting Psalm 118. That's the same Psalm that we talked about in the last story where everyone's saying Hosanna to Jesus as he's coming into his own capital city being the king. He basically continues the people's praise by quoting the next part of the Psalm here. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. I actually find this to be a really strange interjection. Why is that coming here? It doesn't seem to like work with the previous verses. What's Jesus doing here? Well, if you're not a builder, I am not a builder. Uh, a cornerstone, um, I don't even know if it's still done this way, uh, is the first stone set in the construction of a foundation. You might have heard that before. Basically, what Jesus is saying is the old way is done. The old temple is gone, as are its leaders. He's done that in the previous, in the previous story. He's doing it in this, ver- in this story. There's a new foundation. There's a new temple. And this new temple, the foundation isn't concrete, isn't even coquina, as cool as that is. It's not in a bar upgrading to a pub. It's Jesus himself, and he's the one who's building this church. So Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22 helps us with this. uh, Yeah, it's behind me. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. This is you. You're but fellow citizens with God's people, regardless of what continent you might be on, and also members of his household, God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is the Bible, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, a person, the person. In him, in Jesus, this whole building of people is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, individually, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this temple isn't made of bricks. It's made of us. You are part of this new temple that God is creating. A temple is where heaven and earth meet. It's where God resides. It's, it's, the, it's God's like mailing address. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives here. You walk around Trollton. The very fact that you are there walking around Trollton means that God lives here. Redeemer exists because God lives here. 
in your family. Sometimes it's difficult, right? It's not always easy. But the Holy Spirit dwells there even when it feels dark. God lives here. In your job, with your work colleagues, with your friends that you care about, when they seem like they could not care less about God, even if they tried, they couldn't even try to care less because they care like so little, the Holy Spirit is at work through you because God lives here. The next time you walk these streets, think about what that means. God is active here. He lives here. He's residing here through you. And he's building his temple, his dwelling, through you. So there's a new temple. Uh, and that's amazing. But, but wait, there's more. There's new things. Uh, there's a new inheritance. Now, maybe um, if you're like me and Christina, uh, you know, we don't have any rich family members that are going to leave us an inheritance. Um, Hopefully you do, that would be fantastic. Basically what inheritance just means is future. It's, it's a future, it's a, a, a secure future of what's going to happen. So all of us, regardless of if you have an amazing inheritance or not, are anxious about the future. What is going on with the environment? Are we all going to die in five years? What is going on with Brexit? Are we all going to die in five years? Because it'll still be going on. What does it deal with Kids, like our kids' future. I am super anxious about that. What, like, fin even finances in the future, like all the things and everything in the future we do not have control of. We're anxious about that. And the tenants were anxious about their future, about their inheritance. That drove them to kill. That drives us to kill when we're in, living in that kind of fearful life. In our anxiety, we can be a lot like those tenants and live life demanding from God. But we don't have to live that way. We've been given a better way. We've been given a better future. Again, Ephesians helps us understand this. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, uh, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, said, when you believed, for those of us who follow Jesus, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the inheritance we have through Jesus is a new world. When the whole world becomes a temple, not just pockets here and there, the entire world will be heaven and earth reflecting the same reality. When the heavens and earth will be one. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer. when he said, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day that prayer will be fulfilled. It will be answered. That's why we always say in Manchester as in heaven, because we want to enter into that future hope with Jesus. May our city reflect more of God's world in all the things. And until then, until that happens, because it's not happening now, we know that in our reality, until it happens, we have the Holy Spirit, God himself residing in us. God lives here as a down payment for that world to come. But how in the world is this going to happen? Because in the parable, the son's dead. Like, the owner's chucked out people. He's given, uh, you know, more people, different people to come in. Surely it's going to be the same cycle over and over and over again. How is this going to happen? This doesn't sound marvelous. It sounds tragic. Of course, with Jesus, what looked like defeat becomes a victory. The religious leaders did kill Jesus. And like the son in the parable, he was killed outside walls, outside the city walls. He was left for dead. But the owner, the father, is not dead. And Jesus, unlike the son in the parable, didn't stay dead. So the religious leaders saw this disruptive son, this man claiming to be king, and in demanding an inheritance for themselves, they killed the son. But that's not how to get inheritance. <laughs> it's how to get towards a path for death ourselves. But if we surrender to the son, if we surrender to Jesus, he freely gives us an inheritance, starting with the Holy Spirit now. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all working together, are all on the same page, working together for the good of the vineyard, for the good of a new temple, the church, which is us. So will we be so foolish as to miss out on that? 
Even if you, even this is old hat and you've heard it a million times before, we can easily miss it. Religious people miss it easily. The way the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together was through, ultimately, the work of Jesus on the cross. So the Father knows the only way that people would be happy is if they're going to be with him. And he also knew that we couldn't do it ourselves because we're far too foolish, violent, greedy, all the other kind of things that we know really we are. We couldn't come to God, so God came to us. And when the Son was on the cross, he knew our evil hearts and our evil intentions. He knew that we would keep on in these evil ways, and so he took all that evil on himself. And the Father's love, that patient love that he has, he poured out justice that we deserved Not on us, though, but on the son whom he loved. And so when we come to the table, we see the bread as a symbol of Jesus' body. He was killed under our demanding lives, now a symbol of what it looks like to surrender. And the wine is a symbol of Jesus' blood the cost it took him to win us back to him. However violent we once were, however greedy we once were, however selfish really we are in the moment, we are no longer because we're made new through what Jesus has done. And all are welcome to come up here. This table is open for all who want to follow Jesus on his path. You don't have to be a member here, and maybe you've never done this before, but you can join in today because if you want to reject that old way of demanding life to come through for you in ways that it will never do, I promise you, it's never going to come through the way you want it to. If you want to reject that old way of life, if you're tired of that sand falling through your fingers, we all, as a people, get to walk together the path of repentance as we walk up to this table, the path of realigning our lives with Jesus. And everyone has to do that, whether you're like super Christian or not. And what we do is we walk up here, we take a piece of the bread. Remember, get a good piece of bread. Don't get a little tiny little nugget piece. Get a good piece of bread and we dip it in the wine. We do this as we sing together. And in doing so, we say as much as we rely on food and drink, we rely on Jesus to come through for us. Because we know if left to ourselves, we're going to mess things up. And if you don't want to be part of this, that's fine. If you don't believe that, that, that's completely fine. We just don't want you to come up and lie with your actions. Don't do this if it's not true for you. So all our guilt of the past, all the power of evil in our present, like Jesus took that on. And Jesus sent the Spirit so that we might become a new temple and have a new inheritance. So it isn't up to us to now be good, be really, really good. It's up to us to depend, to depend a whole lot more on Jesus to come through for us. So in that power, not our own power, We can rely on him in all the areas of our lives. So as we walk up here and as we're singing, we'll be believing these things together as a people. We're believing that God is a patient and loving father. We'll believe that even in our violence, he makes a way. We'll believe that as we surrender to him, we're rejecting our old demanding ways, knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work because God lives here. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in his eyes. Let me pray.